We are in chapter two. That's right. We had one response. And that's right. It is entitled Manual Interpretation. Woo, look at that. I tell you what, that's getting worse as I get older. But anyway, that's right. We've been seeing Bible interpretation. Hey, what does it mean to you? Who cares, Oz, even though thanks for asking that. That's not the question when you get into the Bible. It's what does the Bible say? And boy, isn't that the problem today? People enter, well, I think what it, who, hey, I want to know what God says, right? Okay, but that's unfortunately not what people are doing. And so we say, well, why is it important? Uh, Because uh, you get it wrong, again, in the opening prayer, you're going to give birth to sin, you're going to condone sin, you're going to give in to error, which means you're going to believe a false teaching, and if you propagate it, you become a false teacher. I'd say that's some serious things. Uh, as we can see there. Now, then we saw about the review, the interpretive process. How do you get into the Bible? Uh, Again, Ruth, great question. Read repeatedly. What's that? Read repeatedly. You know what's coming next. Read repeatedly, okay, is what you need to do. Ask preliminary questions, outline the book, the paragraphs, the main theme, and then last time, what do you do with the evidence? Well, it's the spirit of dragnet comes all over you because you just don't mess with it, don't tamper it, you just deal with the facts. Okay, and if you're going to do that, it involves two important things, and this is where we were at last time. Number one, you need to define, okay, need to define important terms, and where we left off last time, you need to pay attention to what? Rhymes with context. Context, Jim, is the answer here on the ball. Uh, Just as we've seen many times before in real estate, what's the most important thing? Location, location, location. When it comes to interpreting the Bible, what's important? Context, context, context means everything. Top of the page 29 says number two. Let's pick up right there. Observing the context is the blank there of the surrounding verses, the chapter, the book, and the Bible as a whole. Now, why is it important to observe uh, the whole, not just the paragraph, uh, not just the book itself in the Bible, but the whole Bible? Bingo, out of context, Ron. You've been reading the notes, that's right. Uh, Because the basic Bible interpretation rule is the scripture does not contradict scripture. If you think you got the right answer and yet it contradicts the uh, other passages of known scripture, it's wrong. God doesn't lie like man. He is holy, okay, as we saw on Sunday in our new study, okay? Now, what did the writer discuss before this passage and what does he discuss after it? And we gave the example once again of Romans chapter 12, therefore. If you see therefore, you ask the question, what is it therefore? Now, here's what it is. Much error and poor results from Bible study could be prevented if only we would pay closer attention to the context. Too often we try to determine the interpretation of a certain verse or a few verses by simply looking at those verses in an isolated fashion. In Bible college, we would call those pulling a one-verse Charlie. Where that came from, I'm not really sure, but that's what we called it. Okay, in an isolated fashion, you don't want to do that. How many false teachers would flourish during a day if the body of Christ as a whole understood this simple interpretive rule? Let me give you two quick examples. Number one, just verbalize it because we've been there many times before. James chapter four. How many times have I shared that example with you guys? Remember that? Where it says there, and the Bible really says this, you have not because you ask not, right? And we've seen that the word of faith teachers, the false teachers, claim that piece of a verse and yet they ignore the whole context of that verse. First of all, the context is the people, the church, are fighting each other, quarrels and fighting, okay? And that's because they want something but they don't get it. And then then he says, you have not because you ask not. But keep reading. Then the following context says, the reason why you don't get it is because you want to spend it on your own selfish desires. Completely wrenching it out of its context. But let me give you a new one. Turn to your Bibles to Matthew 27. And we're going to read, that's right, an actual Bible passage. Isn't that a neat concept in a Bible study? That's right. Matthew 27 
uh, verse 5, okay? This really does appear, folks, in the Bible, okay? This is really important. Matthew 27, verse 5, when you get there, say moo. You're really there? You just like saying that. You guys are fast, woo! Matthew 27, verse 5 says this. Here it is, right here in the Bible. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left, and then he went away and hanged himself. There it is. Whatever you do, do not support the things of God. Do not uh, use your finances to support God's kingdom. Don't go near his temple. Don't go to a church sanctuary. Don't do none of that stuff because it will lead immediately to thoughts of uh, suicide. It says it right there. Why do you look at me like that? Because it's out of context. That's right. It's out of context. You guys are student. What? Now, now, of course, I'm being facetious, but that's what happens repeatedly over and over again. People will sit there and take a verse and wrench it completely out of its context and make up a whole false teaching and false doctrine out of it. That has nothing to do with that. Why did Judas go and hang himself? Which, by the way, does the Bible condone? No, the Bible says do not murder. Suicide is self-murder, okay? So if you were to say, even if you were to read this in the context and still say that's something good to do because it says Judas went out and hung himself and he was an apostle, so we must do it too. No, now you're contradicting the rest of the Bible that says don't do that. So that can't be right. But in the immediate context, we see the reason why, which the Bible does not condone, was because he betrayed Jesus Christ. Okay, and the money that he was chucking back in the temple had nothing to do with the supporting the kingdom of God or your local church body. Okay, it had to do with the money that he sold out uh, Jesus for. 30 pieces of silver, the common price, I believe, of a slave. Okay, but that's, that's what you see. And that's why, like he says, how many false teachers would flourish in our day if the body of Christ as a whole understood this simple interpretive rule? Check your Bible. Go back to it. Read the context. Don't take anything at face value. The reason why we start our study by repeatedly reading through a book is to start to get a handle on the overall message or the context of the book. The better we understand the overall context of the book, the chances of our coming up with an aberrant interpretation diminish. Our interpretation must always hold up in light of the immediate context, the context surrounding the passages, the context of the book, the context of the Testament and uh, Bible as a whole. Before coming to your final interpretive conclusions, chew on the text, okay? Chew on the text and the context uh, and ask yourself this question. Does the interpretation fit the context? No. Then what do you do? Dump it. Get rid of it. It's the wrong interpretation. Well, that's not very nice. You mean to tell me that I, you just, I don't like somebody to tell me I'm wrong? Well, too bad. Again, what's the premise? I don't care, it, by all due respect, what you think of the Bible. And in, honestly, guys, you really shouldn't be thinking of, uh, of, of my uh, uh, added, uh, interpretation of the Bible. What you need to be asking is to make sure that if it is even in my direction, is Pastor Billy rightly interpreting the Bible? Right? That's the question you should be asking, not what you think, not what I think. What does it say? Okay, but if you're going to get the accurate one, you have to pay attention to the context. We're cruising now, Tom. The spirit of Blavicus is cruising in high gear. Uh, number three, probing cultural, okay, you're blank there, cultural differences, okay? Was this a cultural practice, and what did it mean in that culture? Dario, that's right. Uh, Webster defines culture as the total pattern of human behavior that includes thought, speech, action, and artifacts, and as the customary beliefs, social reforms, and material traits of racial, religious, or social groups. Man, could that guy talk. Uh, thus, culture uh, includes what people think and believe and say and do and make, okay? And Zuck, he wrote, he gives the examples of this. Now, we've already seen the example that I gave before in this study about the whole issue that the Bible talks about, ladies with your hair, don't put it down, okay? And you see, we actually see some people, some certain 
a sex or the denomination of Christianity that would say that the ladies not only cannot wear makeup, but you have to have your hair up in a bun, you have to have it covered, right? Okay, well, if you want to, that's fine, okay? And if you want to wear makeup, that's fine. Uh, I didn't say it, I've said it before, J. Vern McGee did, and I'll quote him on this, because I didn't say this. He said, if a barn needs paint, paint it. You know, common sense. He says, but the... <laughs> that's why I quoted it from him, okay? I'm not kidding, you make it, all right? Okay, it's just common sense, okay? Now, when you come to a church service, he's, the, the, the word there, cosmeto, where we get cosmetics, when he's talking about women's dress and apparel, he says, this, you're not coming here for a show. You're not coming here to draw attention to you. And you certainly don't want to be a distraction to somebody else, okay? But that doesn't mean you can't wear makeup. But if you're getting all gaudy and trying to, you know, whatever, you might want to pray about that. But certainly about your dress is a common sense thing. And that's what he's talking about with the whole hair thing. Because back in the cultural day, when the woman's hair was down, she was saying she was available, Okay, and it was actually kind of scandalous to even go in that community even uh, like that uh, because basically to give a modern day vernacular because you want to understand the culture. Why? So that you could bring it to uh, that which is applicable today. If a lady showed up today wearing a bikini in Sunday morning church service, would that be a distraction? That's what he's, and believe it or not, as weird as it sounds to you and I, even though we're 2000 years removed with a lady coming in with her hair down like that, that's what it did, Right? Makes no sense to us. But when you understand the proper cultural context, then you could rightly bring that passage into today to something that is very applicable. The Bible, even though it was written 2,000 plus years ago, that's just the New Testament, then you got the Old Testament, is applicable to everything today. You know, people say, well, that was just back then. And no, no, I don't think so. And he gives a couple more examples. Why did Boaz go to the city gate to talk to the town elders about Naomi's land? Well, that's just where they hung out. That's, it was right next door to the 7-Eleven. They always got Slurpees. It was a guy thing. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Why, what was the significance of the gate? Well, that's what they did, as he says, they're all their business. Okay? And if you don't understand, man, I can't, I'm, still, I'm still working on Sparky the Turtle and TV guy. So pardon my artwork. <laughs> because, and you have the gates, man. You have these big, huge gates, right? You get your walls up here and all this neat stuff. Look at that. Look at that. These are awesome. Looks like a something i don't know what it is anyway but inside here you come through the big gate right and if you okay but inside there would be these niches okay in these huge gates sometimes double triple stories and these would be like little shops little centers and this is just in the gate as you enter into the city now it was in here where they did their business this is where they did their legal stuff and things of that nature okay so that's why he's going to that oh well that makes sense instead he just goes to the gate right it adds a little bit to that okay uh what is meant by the command gird up your loins it's there in the Bible. That's right, Tom. You've got to gird up your loins. Now, that could be embarrassing if you just take it in the wrong fashion, whatever. But again, that's why you need to pay attention. Because back in the day, loins isn't taken like the way we take it. Okay? And, uh, but, uh, you know, it, uh, let me give you another example. Modern, how many of you guys remember the Flintstones? Huh? Remember that? That's back when life was good. No, no, it's good. But, uh, but anyway, they'd have that song. Remember the theme song? And they're going to have a gay old time. Probably don't want to be too, um, that, you know, too often like that. Uh, because what is that, unfortunately, the term, which meant a good old time, what, what does it now imply? Something wrong, right? So that's how quick, uh, and that's just what? 30 years? 40 years? Okay, that word has changed radically. Well, you got the New Testament here, again, 2,000 years ago. Okay, and then some of the Bible translations to gird up the loins, you know, King James, 500 years ago, some of the words are going to change. So you have to go back in there and you have to understand what are they talking about. And here's what he says, uh, and that's in 1 Peter 1.13. When a man ran, worked, or was in battle, he would tuck in his robe 
under a wide... What is... Were you telling me that people, wherever they went, were, were in the choir? And, and they wore robes wherever they went? And, you know, they were singing the... Oh, wow, spiritual the early church was. No, wrong, wrong, wrong interpretation there. No, that's what they wore back then in those days. We don't wear them today. You know, the old kind of toga-looking thing, the over, overcoat-looking... That's what they did, right? So if you can imagine walking around today with a... Hey, give it up for those choir things we saw the musical. You guys get those things? Those things are sparkaroni. You know what I'm saying? Look at that. We got to get some light action on there. We got to do something with those. This is Vegas, baby. Those are cool. But anyway, that's right. Uh, <laughs> I digress. <laughs> but if you walked around and that was your garb, you had a big, giant, long overflowing, uh, and somebody says, hey, somebody's ripping off your car in the parking lot. You get about five steps and what? <laughs> Right? You'd be tripping over the thing. You, so what you'd have to do, you would have to cinch that baby up, right? Tie it, do something, whatever, to get your legs free, and then you could take out, right? Well, that's what he's talking about there. He's basically saying, well, there's a whole other problem with that. People wearing baggy pants today, those guys get chased. Pants on the ground, pants, what's that, how's that song go? <laughs> whatever, right? Hey, same thing with them. They're hot, they're, what are they going to have to do? They're going to have to finally, believe it or not, Hey, maybe that's what we could do. We can go down every time you see one and say, hey, your car's getting ripped off just to make them pull it up. No, I'm just kidding. That wouldn't be a decide. Okay, but, <laughs> but anyway, uh, uh, that you'd have to pull it up so you wouldn't trip over. And that's what he's saying. Gird up the loins of your what? The context is of your mind. So he's basically saying, uh, uh, pull it up, get ready for action. Be alert, be ready. Okay, and that's what he's talking about. And the context there is uh, spiritual of warfare he's talking about with your mind number four at the top of page 30 discerning figurative language discerning figurative language in the passage is there comparative language and are there overstatements a figure of speech is a word or phrase that is used to communicate something other than your next two blanks there other than natural meaning okay again zuck gives us some helpful rules in determining if a word or phrase is figurative or not. They include, it's not on here, but again, I'm going to say this because I'm telling you folks, we make this much more difficult uh, than it is, okay? We act like getting into the Bible is some hard thing. We're never going to get it. No. Again, it's just taking a lot of common sense, okay? Just common sense, okay, is what's going on there. Number one, he says, always take a passage in its literal sense unless there is good reason for doing otherwise. So what's the rule? We make it up as we go first, only then, if unless it's no. You take it literally unless it demands, obviously, there's some figurative language going on. Jesus says, I am the door. So obviously, he really is a door. No, common sense says what? Obviously, we're, we're being figurative, right? Man, I tell you what, Ron, he's as tough as nails. Hey, but just don't hug them because those nails poke at you and you'll start bleeding, you'll go to the hospital. It's what... No, what does that mean? It's figurative language, comics. We use it all the time. The Bible uses it. Why? Because when we were talking about this whole world on Sunday, the Bible's process of interpretation wasn't some... They had no control over it. They used their will. God used their writing style and their personalities, which means the common rules of language, including figurative language. But the Holy Spirit was the one that was guiding the process. Normal communication, just like we use today, it's in the Bible as well. For example, he says, when John wrote that the 144,000 will be sealed, the Jewish evangelists in the last days, in the seven-year tribulation, with 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel, 
what he was really talking about was the latest figures on the Dow Jones report, right? And if you break it down into 12 sections, that's the secret mathematical formula for always coming out top on the stock market. No. It's, it's common sense, okay? It's 12 tribes of Israel. There's no reason not to take those uh, uh, in, not in their normal, literal sense, right? That's not like saying Jesus was the door, you know, or he was the gate, okay? Uh, it's Ron is tough as nails, okay? That's common sense. No, that's obviously figurative language. No, this is, why not take that literally? Why do you have to speak? And that's what it is, okay? The term is called spiritualizing the text. Ooh, how do you like that one? Okay, spiritualizing the text, okay? It's basically making it up, you know? Uh, as we saw before, you don't want to do that. And yet, the following verse, John referred to Jesus as the lamb. Now, is that a literal lamb? Or is that symbolic of the Old Testament sacrificial lamb, okay? And how did you discern that? Because I went to seminary for 900 years. I could never figure that out unless I spent $18,000. No, okay? Common sense told you that, doesn't it? It's the same thing according to the Bible. Number two, the figurative sense uh, is intended if the literal would involve impossibility. For instance, the Lord told Jeremiah that he made him, quote, an iron pillar and a bronze wall. <gasps> Tom, never stare directly into the eyes of God. It's like Medusa. <laughs> it says it right there. Iron pillar, bronze wall. Don't do it. Common sense. You didn't have to spend that $19,000. You didn't have to go to seminary, let alone Bible college, to figure that out. It's common sense, right? It's figurative language, okay? And John wrote that Jesus held seven stars in his right hand. If only, if only we knew what the seven stars meant, our lives could be complete. Well, good answer. Uh, here's another rule. Keep reading. In fact, I'll write that on there. Keep reading. Even if it's figurative Nine times out of ten, the Bible defines it for you, especially when it comes to the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation has 350 to 400 direct citations or allusions to the Old Testament. So if you want to understand what he's talking about, you just go back to the Old Testament where it occurs, bring it into its context. And then if it's not even defined that way, you just keep reading. Like, open, uh, Revelation chapter 1, turn there. Revelation and this is that great book that says, tortured are you who reads the words of this prophecy and who takes them to heart and who studies them. And yeah, no one says blessed, uh, makarios, spiritually prosperous, uh, if we would do that. Revelation chapter one. And uh, let's take a look at verse 12 through 20 to grab the context of our study. Uh, Revelation chapter one uh, it says this, and I Apostle John speaking, he said, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me and when I turned, I saw seven golden lamps. <laughs> we knew what those were too. Well, thanks for asking. I think we're going to get to it. And, uh, uh, and among the lamps was someone like the Son of Man. Gee, I wonder who that is. Uh, Jesus, okay. Uh, and uh, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like blazing fire. Notice that the ascended Jesus is a whole lot different than his first coming. And when he comes back at his second coming, he's not going to be the meek and mild lamb, sacrificial lamb, dying for the sins of our world. He's coming back to judge this planet. Okay? And it's going to be torn up. Okay? Why? Because he is the king of kings. He is the lord of lords. Uh, chapter 4, chapter 5 tells us he's got the title deed to the earth. It's his. 
and he's coming back to set up his kingdom, okay? But he says, his head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, his eyes were like blazing fire, his feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars, (laughs) there it is. And out of the mouth came sharp, double-edged sword, his face was like the shining sun shining in all its brilliance. And when I saw him, I what? I was in the presence of God and I just felt goosebumps on top of my goosebumps on top of my goosebumps and I started to talk with this Australian accent and it had to be from God. No. Hey, when you encountered the actual presence of God, biblically, what are people doing? Translate that. They're sucking carpet. On their face before God. Whoa. Not this going backwards stuff and all that. We have dealt with that in the final countdown. Uh Uh-uh. Okay, and that's what I feel. I feel as feet as though dead. And then he placed his right hand on me. He said, do not be afraid. I'm the first and the last. I'm the living one. I was dead and behold, I'm alive forever and ever. Praise God. Uh, and I hold the keys of death and Hades of uh, the grave. Write therefore what you have seen, what is now and what will take place later. Later, listen, here it is. Holy, <laughs> I knew I got it. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands is this. What's it say? The seven stars are the angels, angelas, literally messengers. The word there can mean angels or just simply a messenger. Angels are messengers of God, okay? Uh, eight messengers of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are seven churches. Go to sleep, case closed. No need to, you know, get all spiritualized and say, well, really the seven stars represents the universe. No, keep reading if it's not defined immediately by the context, just keep reading, okay? But if you just keep pulling stuff out one verse at a time out of its context, you're gonna get everything messed up. And you wonder why there's so many different denominations? You wonder why there's so, many, so much false teaching? It's back to this topic, rightly interpret uh, the Bible. Okay, let's continue on. Number three, oh, here's another one. He says this, and that uh, John wrote that Jesus held seven stars right hand. The Lord does not have wings, Psalm 57, Right? Now, that's an important thing. I remember I had some Mormons coming over witnessing because they believe that uh, 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 we can become gods and that God was a man just like us who became a god. And so that's their great promise, whatever, amongst other false teachings, a plethora. And so they always want to take it, it's called anthropomorphisms, where you're basically taking attributes to try to describe God using human terms, but he's obviously not human like us. God is spirit, the scripture says, John chapter four. Okay, and uh, he did come and took on flesh as God the son, okay, etc etc but he's not like us he's not like a man but he's trying to use our terminology to help us to understand who he is okay and he's talking about his protective care psalm 91 i think also says that he likes to gather uh, us under his wings okay so does that mean that god's a giant bird in the sky and what no okay and that's what but again you you might think might, might think that's small but again i just gave you one example of false teachers who will come knocking at your door, wrenching a verse out of context, and say, oh, see, just like us. No. And then what they, one that they quoted to me was, and the finger of God. It says right here in the Old Testament, wrote the Ten Commandments. It says it right there, the finger of God. I don't know about you, but man, when I was there, that thing was at least 827 feet long, because it's God, and he's big. Okay, and it scared me. At first, I thought it was a spaceship coming through the sky. But then I saw about the first 50 feet of it with his fingernail. No. He's just talking about who, who wrote the thing. We're not expecting an actual finger to come out of the sky. Okay? 
But again, the false teachers will, will take that and run with it, unfortunately. Number three, figurative is intended if the literal meaning is an absurdity, as in the trees clapping their hands. How many guys would say that it's going to be a rough day when you wake up, you go out in the car, and your, are, your trees are going, hey, woohoo! see you when you get home. How many guys would say it's time to go back to bed? You know what I'm saying? Right? I kid you not, I had a lady back in Northern California that fought me on that. And I'm saying, no, it's just figurative language. No, it says right there, they're clapping their hands. I don't know how God's going to do it, but he's going to have them clap their hands. Are you kidding me? Just don't tell anybody you're a Christian. <laughs> what are you, what? They're clapping their hands. So what, what, what does common sense tell you? All of creation. Well, what is creation for? What do we, why did God create us? To glorify him, to worship him. Okay, all of creation. Okay, but he's not literally going to be clapping their hands, okay? Uh, and uh, I, I gave the example, I think, last week, if you were here. I said, how many guys are married to uh, morning people, right? And you're, you're, you're an evening person. How many guys are morning people? And I give the example, that's me. Brandy's not. I'm going to get in the morning. I actually said this, and I better clarify, because I don't want you guys to interpret it wrong. That when I get up, I do the happy elf dance. Remember that? So that's exactly what I do. I get these little shoes on with these curly things. Woo! Get that hat on with a little dealer buffer. And I come to work. And Kenny lays hands on me. No. It's just figurative language, right? It means I'm joyful. Yay! Yes, everybody in the morning should be right. People of the morning, unite. All two of you. One. Praise God you're here. Braun, three. Ah. Uh, it's just a little bit before. Yeah, so I uh, honestly, I really do love the morning because it's quiet in the house, have a great time with God, the kids are asleep, even the dogs are asleep, okay? And it's just a great time to start your day off uh, with the Lord. I'm not saying that to be super spiritual. Well, our pastor is great. <laughs> no, I'm just, no, seriously, that's what I think it is to me most profitable. But I've learned that some people, that just ain't your time. I still think maybe you should invest your day with the Lord, at least to a certain degree, but if you're really looking for an ex- extended quality of time and morning ain't your time, how's that for a correct grammar? Uh, then uh, maybe uh, try some other time when you're fresh. Okay, let's continue on. Uh, now, number four, take the figurative sense if the literal would demand immoral action, okay? Since it would be cannibalistic to eat the flesh of Jesus and drink his blood, obviously he was speaking what? And yet, did you know that there's people that still teach that today? No, it's the literal blood and the literal body of Jesus. And unless you take it in our way, you're doomed to hell. Who teaches that? Catholic Church. What? And, and because of that kind of heresy, did you know that this was one of the major things that the early church was persecuted and killed for? Because the Romans looked at this, and they're talking about, they're in there eating his blood and uh, eating his body and drinking his blood. These, and they actually thought that Christians were cannibals doing something freaky, and started this room around people. <gasps> and it was part of the propaganda to eventually start killing Christians. All because didn't use common sense and the figurative, understanding the figurative language. Number five, note whether a figurative expression is followed by an explanatory literal statement. Those who fall asleep, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 15, are then spoken of those who have died. Okay, not taking a big nap. Okay, whatever you do, don't ever fall asleep during church services. You might miss the rapture. That's a good technique. I should try that on Sundays. You know what I'm saying, Tom? Let's, let's record this. I'll get that on video. Woo! 
No, let me give you one other example. John chapter 11. Turn there quickly, please. John chapter 11. John chapter 11, verses 11 through 14. Of course, this is the account of Lazarus. That's not the only account where obviously they're using figurative language. And what I like about this passage is Jesus clearly defines it for us. Okay, John chapter 11. And uh, verse 11. After this, he had said this, he went on to tell him, our friend Lazarus has what? He's fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. Now his disciples were like, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. And Jesus had been speaking of his what? His death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So he told them plainly, hey, listen, Lazarus is what? He's dead, okay? Now, for your sake, I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe, but let us now, uh, let's go uh, to him, as he says there. Now, uh, so, so obviously, even when you're looking at terms like that, uh, it did say asleep, but was he talking a literal sleep? No, okay? It was a euphemism for he has uh, and they have uh, died or gone on before us, okay? Now, um, he immediately explained that there were, tr- uh, Paul, here's another example. He did not say when he wrote to the Ephesians were dead, okay? It says there, you were dead. Now, if you stop right there, isn't that the freakiest thing you ever heard of? The apostle Paul actually wrote a whole letter to dead people. That's the, got to be the ultimate sign of a positive attitude to think that somebody in that church is actually going to read your work. That's a man of faith because they were dead. Yeah, and if you keep reading, he says they were dead in their transgressions and sins. So obviously common sense, here's what comes into play. When we see that, is that literal? No, he's talking spiritually you were dead on your transgressions or sins and again now is that really hard i I keep bringing this up and i'm using humor to make a point okay uh but uh do you see how oftentimes we'll approach the bible and i just guys it's too hard no it's not just common sense we use the same figurative language words of speech and things uh even when we talk to each other today it's not that difficult Uh, number six sometimes a figure is marked by a qualifying adjective as in heavenly father okay the true bread the living stone now that's a double freaky day first of all you get up you get out of your house the trees are clapping saying hey she went home and then the rock starts saying hey i'm alive i'm alive i'm alive how many guys say uh just do something come to church services let's lay hands on you but you're not expecting that obviously again it's what it demands it's figurative, okay? Uh, and uh, sometimes a prepositional phrase hints that the preceding noun is not to be understood literally, as in the words, the sword of the Spirit. So when the Holy Spirit shows up in the congregation, we know that his presence is here. When we see, just like in the Garden of Eden, that banned them from ever going back in, there's a giant sword that appears on the pulpit. And at that point, we all know it is time to praise God because we see the sword of the Spirit. And if you think I'm crazy, it wouldn't surprise me if somebody would come up with that teaching. Okay? No. What's he talking about there? One, obviously in the context, he's talking about the Bible. Okay? But it's to be understood figuratively, not literally. Okay? Another example, to fight the good fight of the faith. So that's right, if you're going to be a good on-fire Christian, you get out there and beat people up. For Jesus, of course. Knock them out. Especially when they cut you up on the freeway, man. I'm going to fight the good fight. And that's what our flesh wants to say. That's bad interpretation. No, fight the good fight 
uh, with Jesus. Run hard, be a soldier for him, okay? These helpful rules should help us answer our questions about figurative language, okay? Now, how do we wrap it all up? Well, Tom, thanks for asking. It was Christmas after all. Wrapping it all up. That's right. Uh, the text does not yield the answers to your questions. If it doesn't, look in some good reference works. We talked about this. Bible dictionaries, Bible handbooks, Bible atlases, Bible concordances, or the phone book. Now that I have your attention, no, Bible commentaries. Okay, notice the keyword Bible on every one of those, okay? A list of good resources is provided at the end of this lesson. Look in the commentaries as a, underline this please, last resort. Last resort. I got a lot of commentaries. Lots. And I did get it unpacked too. I'm just satisfied with life right now. No, uh, uh, I got lots of them. But can I tell you honestly how often I ever go to them? I'm not saying this to toot my horn. Rarely. Okay, because one thing I had it drilled in my head in seminary, okay, was they are a last resort. Don't get into your study time that it's your first resort. Why? I'm not saying that they're wrong, but the whole point is you need to become a student of God's word and have the confidence that with common sense and with proper biblical interpretation rules, which is common sense with the normal rules that we use speaking today amongst each other, that you can get in there and rightly discern the word of God. If you come across a particular passage that maybe you're looking for a little bit more meat or even after going to these other resources, you're still not getting really the flavor that you feel, then go to a commentary, okay? Because you need to get in there and discern it uh, for uh, your own self, okay? You're capable of doing the study yourself and coming to conclusions. As you do, you will experience the thrill of discovery, not the agony of defeat. How many guys remember that thing? Remember that guy? How many guys told yourself every time you remember about that, uh, you say, I'm going to go on Google and find out who that guy was. How many guys are going to do it tonight? Yeah, I put that in your head, didn't I? Uh, And as hard work of the illumination of the Holy Spirit, produce the spiritual gold nuggets of the word. Answer the interpretive questions that you uh, can and record your answers in a notebook. Now, to conclude the interpretive process, review is your next blank there. Review the context along with all your observations, okay? Write down what the author's saying in a short paragraph and in your own words. Now, how does it change your life? I could spend a whole time on this, but the spirit of Blavicus is all over me, Tom. I got pressure. Okay, is this. Here's the whole point, man, to what we've been studying for four weeks. This makes number five. Who's counting? I am. Okay, application. This is what, it's just like, this is what bugs me. I said this before, I'm not big on trivial games, Bibleopoly and all that kind of stuff. Not against them, not saying, they're all the devil. Okay, it's just, is that really why we're studying the Bible? Just so I can amaze my friends with some popcorn knowledge that I know how to quote every, no. And we, we've said, it's a Christian axiom, right? The little Christianese phrase. I, people would rather see a Bible than just, they want to see it. I want to see that you love Jesus. Not just say that he's real. I want to see that he's real in you, right? And that comes from, you go through all this process and if you just kept it in your head, what, what a waste of time. It's supposed to be in our heart and that's what he's talking about. Application involves drawing life principles. These are next two mics there. Life principles out of the word of God and applying them to your life. The Bible was not written to satisfy your curiosity or when on Jeopardy. But now they have a new game show out, huh? Have you guys seen that one, that Bible thing, the Bible quiz show? Have you seen it with that Jeff Foxworthy guy, Bible, what's it called? American Bible Challenge. We're going to get on there and whoa! Now, I'm not against that if you want to, okay? But if you 
if you don't get very many of them right, just don't say you're from Sunrise Baptist Church. Okay, but anyway, that's right. <laughs> it's not there to satisfy your curiosity, okay, or win on a game show. It's written to transform your life. Here's your blank there, transform. The ultimate goal of Bible study then is not to do something to the Bible, but to allow the Bible to do something to you so truth becomes tangent to life. At this point, it becomes life transforming as you present your bodies as a living sacrifice. As Zuck puts it, we must have a, listen, responsive heart. Why are you going through all this if you're not going to respond? What's, what's the use of coming every single Sunday if you're not going to respond? What's the use of being here tonight if you're not going to respond? Why are you here if you're not going to respond? Why do you crack an open in the mornings? Okay, before the trees start clapping and the rocks start doing their thing. What, if you're not willing to respond, what a waste of time. I, I said, before I even get God, please, I want to rightly interpret, but, but please make this a reality, right? What, what a waste of time it would be. You need to be responsive, uh, have a responsive heart, a willingness to appropriate the truths of the scripture into our experience. Now, this is what it involves. Is there, you need to ask these questions, you know, of applying. When you're reading a passage, when you're coming across something, especially as we've seen before, if it pops out at you, or if it convicts you, or does both, okay? Ask these questions. Is there an example for me to follow? Yes, I just saw that uh, Jesus washed the disciples' feet. Wow, that's cool. Next chapter. Or, wait a second. He's my Lord. He's my Savior. I say that all the time. That's great Christianese, 101. Is there an example there for me to follow? Right? It's simple. Is there a sin to avoid? Man, have you ever read First and Second Californians? I mean, Corinthians? I mean, it's, woo, that's a messed up church. I mean, they got all kinds of sin going on. Man, they're division. The guy was sleeping with his dad's wife, and they're... Pick, playing favorites in the church and sin and gossip and backbiting and fighting and all kinds of immorality and marrying non-Christians and all that. Woo! Next chapter. Or maybe you could say, oh, um, is there a sin, God, you're trying to point out to me? Something I should avoid? Right? That, that's how it starts to apply. It's not like, hey, guys, you won't believe what the Corinthians were doing. It's like, thank you, God, for illuminating that to me. And I need to refrain from that. Would you please, by the power of your spirit, cause me not to do that? Thank you. Thank you. That's application. That's the whole point. You could sit... Guys, I've told you stories before. There's people who have graduated from seminary, doctoral level, and they're still not even saved. You could have all this biblical knowledge. It amazes you with facts and figures. They just treat it like it's a historical book. I hope we don't do the same. Apply. Is there a promise to claim? Is there a prayer to repeat? Is there a command to obey? Is there a condition to meet? Is there a verse to memorize? Is there an error to mark? Is there a challenge to face? Is there a doctor in the house? Really? I had to say that, but that's there. Record your answers in a notebook. Top of the last page. Let's repeat that after me. Last page. Tom, you're just too excited about this tonight. We'll talk later. All right. Zuck gives us uh, these hints about application. He says, think of application in terms of relationships. Number one, your relationship with who? Your God, with God, right? Okay, or to Satan. That's kind of a weird one. Why would you do that? Who do you think is messing with you every single day? Right, and it's real. Spiritual warfare is real. Uh, we, I think we just quoted on Sunday. Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be 
persecuted. You living for Jesus? You became a threat. Last thing he wants you, he wants you to be that dead fish floating downstream with the rest of culture. But the moment you're that faithful salmon going up against the current, which is resistance all the way, he's going to try to get you to go back the other direction and be that dead fish again, okay? Uh, uh, Or your relations to others, at home, at church, at work or school, to the world and to yourself. Recognize that application can be in the form of improved attitudes as well as improved actions. I love this one attitudinal responses may take longer to develop, right? We talked about this before. I remember Dr. Couch in seminary, he would say, you know, when you first get saved as a Christian, I agree. He says, you, you run across, you know, what we would call the seven deadly sins. You know, the big ones. Now as a Christian, I don't drink, smoke, curse, or chew, or hang around those that do. I'm godly, Right? The seven big ones. Of course, you don't want to go out there and get slovenly drunk. And of course, you don't want to be involved in doing that. That's easy. He says, as you get older and quote unquote mature in the Lord, he says it switches from the seven deadly sins to the six subtle sins. Yeah, you've long gone. Don't have a problem anymore with drunkenness or that kind of immorality and things of that nature. Um, But how are you doing on bitterness? How are you doing on gossip, slander? How you doing with your mouth? Those usually take a, you know, those are the ones. And that's why, those are attitudes. Attitudes, okay, is what he's talking about there. Uh, He says, make application personal. Use the words, I, me, my, mine, not we, us, or our. And certainly don't do, sometimes I wish I had a camera facing your direction, especially on Sundays. You guys are funny. You know what I'm saying? Half the, the jokes that I share are so stupid that sometimes I don't even think they're funny, but I just like your reaction of just saying, that was so dumb, and it makes me laugh, okay? But then, of course, it makes a point. There's a reason for that, okay? Uh, but no, seriously, you know, sometimes when, when God's word's going out, you guys are doing all kinds of cool stuff. I'm sorry to reveal your secrets here, okay? Uh, but you know, when a convicting verse comes along, you know, I, I watch one of you guys go like this to, like, your spouse. <clears throat> Or, you, or, or that's too obvious, so you do the, the, the subtle evil eye. You know what I'm saying? And that's what he says with application. Hey, listen, don't do that. Isn't, did you realize it might have been intended for you, not the person next to you, right? And that's what he says, not me, my, or, you know, uh, I, me, my, but we, us, or not, not we, us, our, but me. My, is this my one? What, me, okay. He says this, he says uh, application statements that remain in the we category are too general. Also, he says be specific. Now this is your test of five weeks of study as we're getting ready to close. Praise God, the prophet Tom has spoken so it came to pass today. And I better hurry up or a meteor is gonna smash into the building and I won't make it. But uh, uh, not to scare you. Uh, It says this, uh, also be specific. Here's your test, listen to this. See if you can deduce, it's what, three sentences? What was going on with the author? of this study. You know where I'm going. I picked this up right away. Listen to this. He says, rather than saying, <laughs> I almost can't make it through. I, I should love my wife more. Be specific by saying something like this. I will take my wife out to dinner this Friday evening. Or, on my way home from work Thursday, I will buy my wife flowers. Or, I will not criticize my wife anytime this week. Drum roll. And the proper interpretation is, what was happening to the author that week when he wrote that? He was having problems with his wife. 
That would be my guess. Possibly. <laughs> Isn't that funny? Oh, there's lots there. Now, here's what he says. Write out, is your final two blanks there, write out an application statement that is specific to you. Okay? Let the word of God change your life first. Then what do you do? You sit on it, waiting for your chance to get on that new game show. No, then you preach and teach the principles to others. Why is it important as we close in proper biblical interpretation to apply it to you, number one, to apply it correctly and then apply it to you first before you share with other people? It's called being a hypocrite. And that's the last thing we need to do. I mean, because again, we could sit here, we saw if we get the wrong interpretation, it'll lead to sin. It'll lead to false teaching. You'll become a false teacher. You don't want an apostasy, Right? But even if you get it right, if you don't apply it, you can say it, but you don't do it. It's another sin called hypocrisy. It's important that we get in here, rightly interpret, but the whole point in getting a proper biblical interpretation of the Bible is to apply it to your life so that when you share, you back it up with your life. And I'm telling you, it hits home a whole lot more when people see that you really mean and live what you say, even if it's the truth. You back it up. Amen? Let's pray. Well, hi, this is Billy Crone of Get Life Ministries, and I hope you were blessed with this study. But in closing, let me ask you one final question. If you were to die today, are you sure that you go to heaven and not hell? Before you answer that, let me share a couple of things that the Bible says. Did you know that the Bible says that God is holy and that we are not? And the wages of our sin or unholiness is death? In other words, we deserve to die and go straight to hell and be separated from God for all eternity. This is the great cosmic dilemma. God who is holy and we are not, how can we have a relationship with Him? The two will never mix. Now, to make matters worse, we don't even want to admit this, even though God already knows He's God. And so God, out of love, gave us something called the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments were not something to just memorize or stick on your wall or give the appearance of being a religious person. The Ten Commandments were God's divine x-ray, if you will, into our heart and soul to reveal this truth that we need to admit. And that is this, that God is holy and that we are not. We are disqualified for heaven. So let's take a look at that divine x-ray that God's trying to get us to realize. Uh, the, the Ten Commandments, the, the ninth one says, you shall not bear false witness. That's lying. Okay. How many guys have ever told a lie? Raise your hand. Okay. Well, if you didn't raise your hand, you just did. You just told a lie because we've all done that. Well, that makes us a liar. The, another Ten Commandments says that you shall not steal. Don't ever take anything without permission. How many of you guys uh, have ever done that? Well, you guys already said you're a bunch of liars. All of our hands should have went up on that one. And for being honest, God already knows. Folks, we've all taken something. We've stolen something, right? That makes us a thief. Another Ten Commandments says that you shall not use the Lord's name in vain. He's not just holy. Even His name is holy. Hey, folks. Let's be honest, if you can believe it, even the name of Jesus Christ uh, has been turned into a common cuss word. Well, the Bible says that's a sin of blasphemy. Now we're a, a blasphemer. The Bible says you shall not commit adultery. And Jesus said, here's his standard. Uh, uh, even if you look at another person with lust in your eye, you committed adultery in your heart. Wow, so now we're an adulterer. The Bible says you shall not murder. And you might think, well, hey, at least I haven't done that one. Really? Again, the Bible says that the sin of hatred, wishing somebody was dead, okay, that, that's the same thing. Uh, it's akin to the sin of murder. It's just you pulled the trigger in your heart, but God sees the heart. Hey, folks, that's just five out of ten. 
How are you doing? You still think you're going to get to heaven on your own? You still think that you're qualified, that you're holy like God, and you could bridge the gap and have a relationship with Him forever? I don't think so. I mean, what did we just see? You're going to stand before God, and so am I. We all are. And we're going to have to give an account for who we are. Hey, hey, God, let me in. Uh, I, I'm, a, I'm a liar. I, I'm a thief. I'm a blasphemer. I'm an adulterer. I'm a murderer. And the Scripture is very clear, folks. Such people as these will not inherit the kingdom of God. We're in trouble. But folks, here's the good news. The Bible says that if we would just admit that, that's the first step, to admit that God is holy, that I'm not, I'm disqualified for heaven, I need a Savior. If we would admit that and then ask for the Savior to save us. That's what God was doing with Jesus. God gave us His Son, Jesus Christ. He took the death penalty in our place so that we could be completely forgiven of everything we've ever done and be made holy through Jesus so that we can now have a relationship with God both here and now and forever in heaven. We can become qualified. The word that the Bible uses is a word called pardon, that God is willing to pardon us of all of our sins and crimes that we've committed against Him and disqualified us that disqualified us for heaven, right? And we've actually seen this work in real life. Uh, for instance, uh, there's been people who have committed crimes, gone to court, the gavel's been passed, the judge has said, hey, listen, we all know you're guilty, uh, you even admit you're guilty, and uh, for your crimes, you're going to not just jail, you're going to uh, await in jail to go to the death penalty. And did you know that there actually is a way that somebody could get off of death row? It's called a pardon. The one in the authority, the governor, can grant what's called a pardon for that person's crimes, and they literally can go free. Not because of something they did, because the deeds are already done, you can't undo it. Not because of they tried to clean up their act while they were stuck in the jail cell, because that doesn't change anything. But simply out of mercy, the person who has the authority can give them a pardon, and they can go free. And did you know, it's actually on historical record, that there have been people who have been granted a pardon from the death penalty, and they've refused to take it. And so, even though the offer was there to be set free, they themselves still had to go to the death penalty. Folks, in a nutshell, that's what God's doing every single day with all of us, this side of heaven. While you still have breath, you still have an opportunity to receive God's pardon. He's willing to forgive you of all your sins if you would just receive His pardon through Jesus Christ. Again, that's what He was doing on the cross. The cross was the death penalty of the day. But since we weren't there, and since we can't earn it, it's a gift from God, you have to receive that by faith. Reach out even today from your own spiritual jail cell, if you will, and say yes to Jesus and God's pardon so that you can be set free and go to heaven. The Bible says that if you confess Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the grave, you will be saved. Hey, folks, if that's you, don't delay. You may not even have tomorrow. Today could be your last day. Please accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Confess with your mouth He is the Lord. Believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the grave, and the Bible says you will be saved. Well, this has been Billy Crone of Gill Life Ministries. If there's anything that we could do for you, our information and, and number will come up here shortly. And please don't hesitate to contact us. But remember, I hope to see you in heaven. God bless.